Stay tuned for a special giveaway announcement. Mightier is a biofeedback-based video game platform that teaches kids how to emotionally self-regulate. This means that kids learn the skills they need to manage their emotions and reduce meltdowns, thus improving the quality of their life. My kids have been using Mightier for years now, and it's made such a difference in our house. I'm a huge fan of science, and Mightier is proven science at a Harvard Medical and Boston Children's Hospital. I'm so excited to share that I've partnered with my friends at Mightier to provide one of my listeners with a full one-year subscription to their amazing platform. This includes access to the platform itself, a full Mightier kit, including a brand new Mightier tablet, and even some fun swag for the kiddos. This contest will run from August 1st through August 12th. The winner will be announced on Friday, August 19th at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on the podcast. So be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app and tune in. Link in the show notes below for contest rules, ways to enter, and uh, all that fun stuff. Welcome to the Autism Dead Podcast. I'm Rob Gorski, and this is the show where we talk about all things related to autism and parenting and ADHD and mental health and all those things that are important to your life and relevant to your life that maybe uh, we don't talk about enough, right? So we're going to talk about all that stuff here. So thank you for taking the time to tune in. I really do appreciate that. Today, we are going to talk about milestones, those, those things that uh, they're kind of like markers to show your child's development, whether it's walking or talking or sitting up or doing whatever. Uh, we're going to talk about that stuff because one of the ways that you can identify autism early on is when kids miss milestones. But sometimes milestones are missed and there's nothing wrong. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about when to worry about uh, milestones being missed and when you should just kind of wait it out and give yourself a little bit of time and give your kid a little bit of time to, uh, to catch up. So my guest today is Dr. Jason Kahn. He is a developmental psychiatrist and he's here to just kind of talk about milestones and what parents should be looking out for, when you should worry, how you should talk to your pediatrician if you are concerned and how to kind of navigate that whole thing because it can be really stressful when you're especially a first-time parent and you're worried about your kids. So Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. Could you take a moment and just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and your awesome posters I just noticed on the back wall. I like the album covers. Nice. Yeah, album covers. So my name is Dr. Jason Kahn. I am a developmental psychiatrist. I am the chief science officer of a company called My Dear. Uh, My Dear builds a program that uses biofeedback to build emotional regulation skills. I'm also the, a part-time instructor at Boston Children's Hospital in the Department of Psychiatry, as well as Harvard Medical School, also in the Department of Psychiatry. And yes, as you pointed out, I listened to a lot of music and I got flaming clips and prints behind me. Yeah, I saw that. That's really cool. I like that. Uh, and you have good taste in music. That's the other thing. Oh, so if anybody you. out there is, yeah, it's good taste. <laughs> um, we've had many conversations over the years. Uh, but one of the things that I really wanted to kind of touch on today, and we were kind of talking about this before we started recording was, you know, you have parents out there who are maybe first time parents, you know, and, and they are, they're suspecting that something might not be right or that their child is missing milestones, or there may be some developmental delays and they're concerned. What can parents do when they kind of come into a situation like that, where like their gut just tells them like something's not right? What, what is, what is something that they should do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a question that I hear a lot too. And the first step on any parent journey is going to be to schedule an appointment with their pediatrician. Pediatrician is going to then be able to look at the child in relation to some sort of expected developmental milestones and really build a sense of what type of service, like really what type of evaluation the child might need beyond what the pediatrician can provide. But that 
that step in that doctor's visit is really the first one. And I know it's like, it's, it's really scary as a parent, right? Cause you hear like, you're watching your child, you're watching your friend's child or classmates or peers or whatever. And development isn't quite lining up. Like it can be scary and it can be uncomfortable, but really just that first step is, is talking to your doctor. If, uh, if a, if a parent suspects something is going on, what, what kind of conversation should they be having? Are there, are there specific questions that they should be kind of focused on to kind of guide them a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think that they should be, they should be prepared to be specific with a pediatrician. Like these are the things that we're noticing. Um, these are the situations where we're noticing them. So are they seeing uh, communication differences? Are they seeing play differences? Are they seeing um motor like gross motor differences so like how like hitting like walking or movement milestones things like that or fine motor differences which would be things like writing um i think being very specific about where and when and in what settings is going to help the doctor start to set up like this like this you know start to put together the puzzle and honestly start to help think about where to go the other piece that you can proactively bring to those conversations is just asking what developmental milestones that a child should be hitting um, and really trying to understand, like, in the doctor's mind, what do the norms look like? Um, I know the CDC, so if a parent is really interested, you can go to the CDC website. And the CDC does list out what typical developmental milestones there are. Uh, the doctor will be looking at sort of the same, the same information. Also, with that information, be comparing it to the their clinical experience and their training to try to build, like, this understanding of where is a child developmentally where are other children developmentally and are there supports that might make sense that can help that child developmentally. And then, it, and, and then is it true too? Cause like a lot of, a lot of times kids are just late, right? Like they don't talk until a little bit later or they don't walk until a little bit later. And sometimes that's just kind of like just the way it is. It, it doesn't indicate anything other than just the child is taking their time. Oh yeah. And I think like that's really important, right? So there's, it's really important for parents to understand that just because most children hit a developmental milestone at a certain time, that because their child is late for something, it has any real, any real predictive value at all. Uh, there's just there's so much variability on when kids learn how to walk, when kids learn how to talk, and that most pediatricians will take this perspective. But until you get like, until you are fairly late, like really like notably late in a developmental progression is when, when an intervention is going. So if your child is missing a, a milestone by a month or even two months, it can be perfectly normal. And I think like the piece that's very hard, especially for first time parents, is you're watching your child and it's like, oh no, they're not, they're not talking and other children are talking. Mm -hmm. And does this mean I'm going to have some, you know, long-term cascading challenge? Oftentimes the answer is no, like child is going to be fine. I mean, even thinking about that, like one of the things that I think can be frustrating for parents is that a pediatrician could just advise you to wait and you know, from the pediatrician's perspective, they are, they're urging patients because that's honestly, that's what the child needs. That's where the child is. And I know if you're a parent and you're worried, like you want to go, you want to go, you want to do something, but oftentimes like child just needs a little bit of extra time and that's, that's okay. Uh, my, my youngest, he's going to be 14 on Monday or Sunday, 14 on Sunday. Um, he he was, they, he was diagnosed as being nonverbal and didn't, he spoke in like these musical tones and we were really, really worried about it because 
that's scary. I mean, we had like two other kids who were very verbal and who talked and all that kind of stuff. And this was like a profoundly different experience. And we were really afraid. We started learning sign language and all this other stuff to try and like do whatever we could to build communication. And then about four years old, he just started talking like he'd been just saving it up the whole time. And he just wasn't ready. I think four years old is kind of a late, definitely a late thing. What are some of the common milestones that parents should be more focused on? Like what are the, what are the really important ones that we need to really kind of pay attention to versus the kind that mm, we can float this a couple of months either way. And and it's, you know, it's probably going to be fine. Yeah, that's a great question. I think like the really big ones are, I mean, a child is not walking much later than his peers, then that's something that we want to pay attention to. Uh, likewise, communication is something that we want to pay attention to. Like even like you said, four years old is late. And like, I think even when that scenario, like I want to think if there are supports we can put in, we start be putting in place um, at that point. Uh, it sounds like in your case, like he was taking it all in. So the receptive language was all there. Um, the production of language was delayed. And like, as you said, that was, that was okay. I think again, by bringing somebody in who's a specialist, they're going to, they're going to be looking at the, they're going to be looking at the child in a very nuanced way. And so they're going to be like, okay, what skills is the child exhibiting? Where are their potential deficits? Where can we put supports in to maybe help along with those deficits? And then the other thing that I think is, is really valuable is just play. So watching how a child plays, because if the play looks different um, and much out of place versus the peers, like that social relatedness is often a clue that something is, something is a little different about the child and there might be extra needs. That's, that's how I, when I was telling you about my, uh, my 16 year old, that's what I noticed when we were doing preschool orientation. It was so profound at that, at that point, because I watched his peers playing one way and he was off to the side doing kind of his own thing. And it just hit me, you know, that I don't know, I don't know how I didn't, I didn't see that until then. Maybe I didn't want to see it, but it was so profoundly different than what his other two brothers experienced that I just didn't, I just didn't see it. And I thought everything was okay. Um, Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to, I mean, I was going to build on that, which is, I mean, how valuable the school can be in this process and the relationship to peers, because that, that can be a really big clue. And until the child goes into that setting, the language, like it can feel like what you're seeing is what you know. And so without that, without that clue, um, it can be sometimes hard to see. And I mean, I think like to the point about doctors that we made too, is like, I mean, really involving the teachers and asking the teachers um, for where their like where their thoughts are and if there are challenges they're noticing can be really valuable and also help structure help structure conversations with them with the medical provider as well. You know, parents can be frustrated when pediatricians feel like the best thing to do is wait. When you see your child, your frame of reference is relatively limited, right? Like that scope is pretty limited. When you're dealing with a teacher who sees, you know, hundreds of kids, and and pediatricians who deal with hundreds of kids, they kind of have insight and perspective that you don't have necessarily as a parent. And so it's not that you're necessarily being blown off. It's that, look, I see so many kids and majority of the time when I see this, it's okay. We just give it some time and whatever. How, how can we help parents better understand that? I feel like sometimes parents really get put off by that. And it's very, very frustrating Oh, I mean, it's, a, it's going to feel, I mean, I don't know, I don't have a great answer for parents because it is going to feel frustrating. The reality is it's your child. You're going to care about your child more than anyone else. 
And so when you bring it in, in a, in a professional, be it a teacher or a doctor, doesn't see your child in the same way you do, I don't have, like, I just, I mean, I want to remind parents that it's, it's, it's okay and they should feel validated that, like, look, it's, all these conversations are not going to go the same. I think the other side of that, though, is, in my experience, pediatricians and teachers always tend to be on your side. And so when a pediatrician is talking to you about where your child is, they're looking at a, you know, they're looking at developmental milestones, they're looking at published developmental milestones, and they're looking at ranges, and they're looking at their clinical experience, and they're looking at what they've learned in their, in their treatment, in their history of treating children. And they're, they're trying to make an assessment in the moment of where the child is relative to what they know, what we know scientifically, what they know clinically. And even if their judgment doesn't line up with yours, they're really like, they're really just trying to they're really just matching things up. And in some ways, like it's, it's almost easiest as a parent to just depersonalize it, right? Like a, from a pediatrician's perspective, they're running through a checklist. And I think for a parent, the important thing is if you're not getting the answer you want is sort of like, go back to the pediatrician and be like, okay, like this is where we are today. But at what point, like what point should I bring this child back here? What time should we be concerned? And what developmental milestones are you paying attention to? And really like just try to like turn the conversation around so that you can get the information and at least be talking the same language uh, and having that conversation on the same terms. And, and as we're talking about this, I just, I just thought about this because I've, I have seen this. Um, I don't think it's as often as I hear it the other way around, but what about when pediatricians are the ones who notice something and parents can be resistant to that? Yeah, I think you're lucky because you, I mean, I think most of the audience that we have today are people who have, have realized there's a challenge for your, for their children. It does happen the other way. Um, happens both in medical settings and in educational settings mm-hmm. um, where a teacher or a doctor will notice something and refer extra help and the parent will have a hard time seeing it in their child. And I think in some ways, the advice stays the same, right? So remember that that teacher or that doctor is on your side. They want the best for your child. They get to see their child. They get to see your their, your child in a different light than you do because of the because of the perspective they have is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't live with the child. They don't have that perspective, but they do see lots of children, and they have they're bringing that perspective. And that perspective is really trying to be in service of the child's well being. I think. Again, I think a lot of your audience realizes this, but there are a lot of services available to, to parents and children who have extra needs. And especially like when a doctor or a teacher is talking to you on these terms, like really the end result and what that, what that person is hope, hoping for is to steer some of those extra services your way so that your child can have every advantage possible. It's like opening doors. We're trying to open doors, yeah. P- put yes. options on a table so that you can help your child, whether you realize your child needs it or, or not. Well, and I think that's the piece, like, especially like, I mean, if you think about, even if you don't think your child needs the service, it's like, once you, once that mindset flips of like, these are services available to my child, like whether or not the child needs, they're going to help, like they're helpful to everybody. And then it just becomes like, well, why not? Why not take advantage of them? What are really, why not take advantage of them? Um, what are some of the challenges or, or I guess limitations? Cause we talked a little bit earlier about just the whole process. And, and before we were recording, we we're talking about some of the delays that some parents are experiencing because of uh, maybe their demographic location. Like there's, there's shortages in uh, pediatric psychiatrists 
So depending on where you live, your access to that kind of process may be a longer wait list than somebody in Boston or New Jersey or somebody you know where they have pretty immediate access. Uh, I did want to ask when, why, why do you think there is such a shortage? Why is it so hard to get people to, to, to go into that, uh, pediatric psychiatry field? This episode of the autism dead podcast is brought to you by trail magic. Commuting with nature is one of the best methods of self-care available and hiking is one of the best ways to enjoy nature. If you're a parent who enjoys hitting the trails with your little ones, you're already aware that toddlers will walk some of the journey and want to be carried the rest of the way. There are tons of contraptions out there for carrying babies while on a trail, but what about those in-between toddler years? You don't want to bring a big bulky carrier for a kid who's only going to use it some of the time. The Trail Magic Kid Carrier solves that problem and it does so brilliantly. Invented by a dad who wanted to take his three-year-old backpacking, it's for kiddos 12 months up to 43 pounds. The carrier attaches onto hiking backpacks and durable day packs that have a waist strap and upper loaders. Weighing less than 10 ounces, it's so portable you can stuff it in the side of your backpack when not in use. The Trail Magic Kid Carrier is a total game changer for the outdoor adventure family community. For more information, visit trailmagic.com. That's T-R-A-I-L-M-A-G-I-K.com. Use the code theautismdad at checkout and save 10% off your order. I think there are a couple pieces. I mean, the first thing is that it just takes a really long time to train new psychiatrists, uh, new neurologists, new psychologists. Uh, It's many years of school. It takes a long time to get there. And so even today, like if we were to take everyone in med school and say, look, you're going to be a psychiatrist. In fact, you're going to be a pediatrician. You're going to be a pediatric psychiatrist. If we were to take everyone and say that. We'd still be like six plus years because four years of school, then a residency, like then a, like a second residency to be a pediatric specialist. It's a long time to go get these people from med school out into the field. So it just takes a long time. Pandemic hasn't helped at all. So like every other profession, a lot of people have left the field during pandemic for various reasons. Um, Just their own internal stress, like all of us, like every single one of us, their own internal stress is building up. Some people didn't like the switch over to telepsychiatry and telemedicine. So having to interact with patients over the phone. Some people don't like, because like we've also changed how we frame on the professional side of this, how we frame caseloads. So usually people are being asked to see more and more and more patients, which means less opportunity to connect individually with any one patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just, there are a lot of factors at play um, as to why we're having a lot of a hard time getting, getting people into the field. You know, and as you said, like this plays out, if you're a parent, like, and you need, because the pediatrician's only the front door, like that's like the pediatrician's the front door. And the pediatrician is going to say like, if you're, if the child is, pediatrician suspects the child might have autism, then the pediatrician is going to refer you to a developmental psychologist, developmental pediatrician, or a or a neurologist, or someone who can more formally make a diagnosis. A diagnosis, it's a it's a fairly long interview uh, visit to go get that diagnosis, um, and so there's going to be a wait there to go get to go have the appointment and then go have the visit. Like there's, it's just there's going to be waiting. Once you even get through that piece, then like you said, there's. The evaluation is not treatment. And so then you're going to need a specialist to provide the treatment. And even in those cases, no matter what type of treatment you are seeking out or is, is the proper, is in your treatment plan, there's still going to be like, we still need to find specialists who can provide that. And that's going to, that can potentially take time as well. So when you are, because kind of the way the world works, it seems is that a lot of services are available 
after a child receives a diagnosis. What are some things that parents can do from home, like on their own or, or things that they can utilize to, to help their child? Like if they're suspecting something might be wrong, what are things that they can do at home or services that are available to them, I guess, without an official diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a couple of places that are important for parents. So I think the first thing I would point parents at is just, especially when we're talking about autism and we're talking about young children, is to make sure they are well, well, well aligned with their educational community. Um, I think parents, I think a lot of parents, especially in this audience, know this, but there are laws and regulation that protect the experience of children with autism. And so usually schools will be very interested in early interventions, usually because they have to. And so making sure they're well aligned and have that process and school might even have resources to help with diagnosis. So getting that out in front of the, getting out that partnership and being in front of that partnership is really important. The other piece, especially for older children, I mean, there's programs like we make one of these programs. So we make a program called My Dear. My Dear builds emotional regulation skills. People are becoming more and more familiar with emotional regulation. So I usually end up having to explain it less and less, but it's the, it's the fundamental skill that sort of helps, it helps all the other skills. It's, you know, I, we're used to, I mean, I have young children and whether you have, you know, whether your child is autistic or not, you're used to the idea that children can have quite the temper and quite the fuse and don't always know what to do with their frustration. Um, and this is something that is more pronounced when a child has autism, it's more pronounced when a child has ADHD, it's more pronounced when a child has anxiety. Like these kids often need extra help. And what happens when they don't have a handle on their emotional regulation is they show like, so you see symptoms, you see symptoms like anger, you see symptoms like aggression, you, they, be, they can actually become more anxious. Like the kids show you this, the kids show you that they have an emotional regulation challenge. Um, they also just have a really hard time participating socially because if you're angry or you're frustrated or you're withdrawing, you're not going to hang out in your classroom and you're not going to participate or you're going to have a harder time interacting with parents or your siblings or whatever. So it's, I mean, just again, just to underline the point, emotional regulation is like the fundamental enabling skill of all other skills. And, you know, with my, it would be my magic wand skill of like the thing that we should be paying attention to for every single five and six year old in the world. Like forget reading and math, like emotional regulation, I think is really where we get the most bang for our buck in childhood. Okay. <laughs> so my dear is a program that helps build emotional regulation skills. It does this through biofeedback video games. And it's these types of programs. My dear is designed to be used in home are ways that families can sort of, there are ways that you can beat the wait list because there are programs where you can just put it in your home right in the moment of need. And you can start building skills that are going to be valuable, even like, even as your child goes into therapy and you can get a head start on, you can get a head start on everything, which just can be so powerful for a child. The other thing that I was, I was thinking too, is that even if your child ultimately isn't diagnosed with being autistic or having ADHD, like, and, and you get through that evaluation process and they, they actually don't have a diagnosis, these are still skills that are vital to function right in, in the world. Yeah. I mean, every single, every single kid benefits from this skill, every single human benefits from the skill. And so it's, it's really not a question of does your child have autism? Like we should be working on this skill. I think where it becomes potentially more urgent for families is if they are on that wait list, like you said, so they are 
because you know at that point your child needs to be building skills. Uh, that's why you're on a wait list. Mm-hmm. And for those families, like there is something that you can be doing in the moment, like being able to take a little bit of control and find services again, like my dear, which are going to build skills, but also help you educationally. And like, you know, we have a lot of resources that are parent facing. It takes this moment that can feel overwhelming and kind of something like my dear, especially it's designed to put your kid in control. It's designed to put you in control as a, as a it's empowering. Yeah. Yeah. When I, uh, when I first connected with Mightier and it was my, I really focused on it with my youngest, but I've used it with my, my now 22 year old as well. My kids have been in therapy forever and I'm a, I'm a big believer in therapy and it, it was all the same, you know, we were addressing things like meltdowns and frustration and aggression because communication was challenging and I can remember sitting in therapy for years, <laughs> like, okay, take a deep breath, like going through all of those things, uh, especially with Emmett, my youngest. And, and it, it kind of felt like he, he kind of got it, but it just never like clicked. Like it never, like the gears were kind of like stripping out still sometimes. And when he started using mightier and playing the games, it became less about teaching him to do these things and more about him wanting to do them because it was part of the game. So it's like you had to do this in order to get farther. And the way that it does that, it just, it just clicked with him. And I I will never forget, like the very first time that I saw a change in him was he was arguing my 16 year old, they were little, but they were arguing back and forth about something. And I was getting ready to intervene because this is about the time when something gets thrown. And he just stopped and he took a deep breath and he counted to 10. And I was like, oh my God, that is amazing. And how, like, we've been trying for years to get him to do that, but it just wasn't being, he wasn't learning in a way that just clicked for whatever reason. And Mightier was what helped, you know, and that's why I'm such a huge fan of Mightier. Yeah. I mean, the magic of Mightier is it's play-based. So kids want to be there. Um, We know kids learn through play. We see our kids learn through play. Um, it's video games. So when we know a lot of our kids like video games, it's a way to take the screen time and turn it into something positive. And like you said, like there, it's a way to see your emotions. It's a way to be empowered by your emotions. Like I think we're, as kids, we're, we're used to hearing, calm down, calm down, calm down. But like, for what, why, how? And my ear basically lets you see why, what it does, how it works, what it feels like. Cause you see your heart rate. Yeah, exactly. You get to see your, you get to see your heart rate as you play. And so it's, and it shows the kid that they're in control. It's not something that they have to worry about an adult helping them with. Yeah. And with my oldest, I started using it with him when he was about 18. He was about 18, which is, is normally outside of the range that I know that you guys recommend or whatever. But what my thought was he's transitioning to adulthood and he struggles emotionally with things. And he started using mightier and even as more of an adult, like an older teen going into adulthood, it was more about him recognizing like what he was feeling before it became to, before it got to a point where it was like that tipping point where, you know, you reach that threshold where there's just like no other way, but to purge. And he was able to recognize what that felt like because he was able to see it on the screen and you could correlate going into the red with him being either too excited or, or frustrated 
And it just helped him to connect the dots. And he still uses it from time to time. Like he'll just be like, I, I think I just need to practice because he's preparing to move out, which is another amazing thing. I, I didn't know that was ever going to happen, but it's helped him too in a way that maybe it wasn't necessarily intended for, but because it works on humans, it just, he didn't have to, he didn't have to learn really anything. It just, he just pick like, you just pick it up. Like your body learns it without you having to be aware. Does that make sense? Oh, it completely makes sense. I think this is one of the things like we almost forget this as grownups. Like we think that everything has to be explainable and that everything has to be like, we have to be able to put words and thoughts and ideas around everything. But when you're a kid and even when, as you said, like even when you're a young adult, grown adult, like our bodies are such experiential learning, so good at experiential learning. And so that feeling of cooling yourself down over and over and over, which is what my dear does. You just cool yourself, like you play games, you get to these point where the games are hard and then my dear sees it because it's five feedback, it sees your heart rate and you cool yourself down because otherwise the game becomes very hard. And so you're motivated to do this. You do it over and over and over and over and over again. You know, just think of anything where you're just do it so much that your body develops a muscle memory, right? Like riding a bike or driving a car, like just picture yourself, like for the adults, like the 16 version, 16 year old version of yourself trying to drive a car and how awkward that feels versus the fact that you can go to the grocery store right now and not even know what happened. Um, (laughs) How did I get here? I don't remember the drive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, But your body does that. Your body will do that. And so if you practice cooling down, your body's going to do that for cooling down. Um, And you're not going to need to sit there and think about, I need to count to 10. I need to do progressive muscle relaxation. And that's, I think that's what has been really helpful for him because there's, there's cognitive delays for him. And so conceptually trying to understand the process could be frustrating, but when he can just do it and it's part of the game, like he, he masters every game that he plays. Like he's really, really good at video games. That's one of his like things. And it's part of mastering the game is to keep your heart rate under control and to keep yourself calm. And it just worked for him. I'm always amazed at where he is now versus where he was 10 years ago, even five years ago. And, and my dear was honestly, it was a big part of that for him. And the only one who didn't need it was my 16 year old, but the youngest and my oldest have benefited immensely from that. And then we all benefited from it because it was stressful. It's stressful when your kids are having meltdowns all the time. And, and I was able to I don't know, like it, it, it reduced my stress. It, it has, has like the tri- trickle down effect, everybody in the house, because your kid might be the one experiencing the meltdowns, but everybody in the house is experiencing that energy, whatever. And you're helping everybody out in a sense, because it, it changes the atmosphere in the home, which is pretty powerful, I think. Well, I mean, I think that's another big piece that I, I mean, has always been important to us. And it's so, it's so, I'm so grateful just even listening to you talk about it is we really strive as a company to make entire families' lives better. Um, and in fact, we measure it. We, we measure family stress. It's part of what we, it's part of what we hold ourselves to as a company. Because it is, it's true. It's hard as a parent to have a child who has reactions that are bigger. Um, and you know, for those, for those parents, like we do, we want to make, we want to make the, we want to make their home a better place. We want to, you know, I mean, we know every child can be successful. Uh, and if we can, if we can get there and we can help that child, then we, we're, we know we're helping an entire family. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I like that. I've, I've always, uh, I remember and just kind of a funny story. And I don't know if I ever told you this before, but like, I remember when you guys first approached me about mightier years and years and years ago, and it was, the pitch was video games 
can teach your kids this stuff. And I was like, there's no way. <laughs> there's like no way. Like screen time is like the cause of half the meltdowns that we have in our house sometimes. And uh, I finally was like, okay, look, we'll look at it and see what it was like. And unbelievable. Like I, I'm so grateful that I, that I, well, you guys, you guys were persistent, but I'm grateful that I, I was open to that at that point because I, I would not have imagined there being a such thing as positive screen time because you're always, it's always beaten into your head as a parent, like less screen time is better, less screen time is better, but there are forms of positive screen time. And I guess one of the questions or the last question that I really have is what would you tell parents who hear about what this is, but feel like how can screen time be a positive thing? It's funny. I mean, I do have these conversations and what I ask parents to do is to think about how, if you think screen time is negative, that is your predisposition, then you are, have you, you, you already think screen time can produce a change. You already think that because you would not have a preconception about screen time. And so if we agree that screen time can produce a change, then why make it like we can be in charge, like we can be in charge of what that change looks like. And so what we've done, and we've, we've done this scientifically, we've done this in the lab, we've done this at Boston Children's, done this at Harvard, we've done this collaborators, doing this with the NIH now, we've done, but more importantly, we've done it in 50,000 homes so far, is be able to show that screen time can make a positive change. It can change, like you're saying, it can change a kid's life. And so, you know, to that end, yes, it requires us to shift our thinking a little bit, but not that much when you think about it, like, because we already think screens impact our children. Um, Why does it have to be negative? Yeah, it doesn't have to be negative. It can be for the better. So, yeah, that's a really good point. I never thought about it like that. If we agree, if we have a negative predisposition, if we have a negative view of screen time, we have that view because we think that it's having a negative impact on our kids. But if it can have a negative impact, then it should also be able to have a positive impact if you're using the right kind of stuff. I hadn't thought about it like that. That's a really good point. Is there, um, is there anything else that you would like to, to just tell parents just in general? I, you know, I, again, I, I, I'm lucky enough to get to talk to a lot of parents. And I think like the, the place I like to just always end is just a note of positivity. Like we are in a point right now where our world is unbelievably hard. Parenting is unbelievably hard. The stresses that we put on our children are not like anything any of us have faced when we were kids. And I think parents need to just remind themselves that they're doing their best and they're doing a great job. And like anytime they are listening to a podcast like this or, you know, searching around and trying to find the tools that will help their kids, they're, they're doing a, they're doing a world of good. Um, every time they just show up for their kid, uh, you know, every time you just cook a meal for your kid, you're, you're winning, you're doing a great job. And so it's, um, you know, I know, I know it's really hard right now. And I just am so appreciative of all the work that everybody is doing right now. Very, very cool. That's what I, I always like to tell parents, like you are never going to be the perfect parent, right? Cause nobody's perfect, but you can still be the perfect person to parent your kids. There's so many people out there who just, and I'm guilty of it too, just beating ourselves up because we perceive that we're not doing enough, whatever. And there's parents out there that they're doing amazing. Like you guys really are. You're doing amazing. You haven't quit. You know, you keep, you keep trying, you keep looking for the next thing. Uh, friends with Kate Swenson from finding Cooper's voice. And she has this thing where she just like, it's 
you, you can quit today. You can try whatever, but tomorrow you just try one more thing and you just keep, you just keep one more thing. And then eventually that one more thing is going to lead to something that, you know, can have positive change and, uh, pat yourselves on the back and take care of yourselves. Self-care is a huge thing. Yeah. I really, I really appreciate it, man. It's good to talk to you again. Nice to talk with you too. I like your barber. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I don't. Quite talented. How can people connect? Yeah, if they want to connect with Mightier, the easiest way is to go to the website. So www.mightier.com. Um, if people want to talk with me, then my email is not a secret. It's jason at mightier.com. Okay. And uh, yeah, thank you again for everything that you do. And, uh, you know, just, I don't know, maybe whatever, but just you guys have had such a profound impact on the lives of just my family. I am a very firm supporter of, of everything that you guys are doing. And I, I have a very short list of organizations that I, I stand behind. Uh, and you guys are at the top of that list because I have seen the impact that it has on families. I hear from uh, people that I've referred out. It's just, they're just in this state of shock that it can have such a, a positive impact on their lives. And it's, you know, wish it was there a long time ago. And I hope you guys make one for adults. That'd be super cool. But, you know, maybe someday. 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 For sure. <laughs> I, I still, there's a lot of parents that use. Yeah. I, I, I've played it. It's fun. It's parents show because it's both fun and it's. You get a better idea of what it. your kids are experiencing. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, all the information will be in the show notes below and I'll put the uh, link to the CDC uh, milestone guidelines as well, since we, we brought that up and uh, yeah, I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Yep. Before I close things out today, I just want to take a minute and say thank you to Dr. Jason Kahn for taking the time to come on the show and talking to us about milestones. Milestones can be very, very confusing, very intimidating, very scary for parents, especially when kids are delayed or they miss a milestone or they feel like maybe they haven't hit something at the right time or you know whatever it is. Sometimes it's perfectly normal. Sometimes you need to be concerned. And you know, having that kind of foundation of knowledge so that we can uh, decipher when we should be concerned and when we should uh, just kind of wait things out is really, really important. And Jason, you did a great job of explaining that. Thank you so much. And thank you for talking to us about Mightier again. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Mightier, if you guys don't already know that. And uh, you guys can find more uh, about Mightier and Jason at mightier.com. That's M-I-G-H-T-I-E-R. Link in the show notes below. And remember, if you use the code the Autism Dad at checkout, you'll save 10% on your uh, order through the Mightier website. So yeah, hope that helps. As always, you can find me at listen.theautismdad.com where you can find all the links to subscribe and do all kinds of cool interactions with the podcast. You can submit show suggestions or apply to be a guest, all that kind of cool stuff. So again, that's listen.theautismdad.com. I hope you guys have a fantastic week and uh, I will talk to you on Friday. All right, take care. Thanks, bye.